Kratov, everyone. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. I am glad to be with you. Rabbi Mordecai Griffin here, the rabbi of Sarshalom Synagogue, the founder of Lapid Judaism, uh, your host for the daily episode of the Aliyah Day. We are in Parasha Matot Maseh. It's a double portion Parasha this week. It happens to be the Parasha, the birthday portion Parasha of uh, my daughter Hadassah. So Mazal Tov, she uh, gets a double portion because, as and to use her lingo, she's extra. So she gets <laughs> she gets a double portion. Uh, this is also the final parashot of the book of Bamid Bar. So we will be concluding a sefer of Torah this week, and next week we'll begin. We we will begin rather um, parasha. Uh, or excuse me, Sefer Devarim, the, the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. So that's exciting, right? Baruch Hashem. I hope it's uh, going to be a good week for you. And Hashem is uh, always working, always working His plan. And so that uh, is wonderful. And I bless you for that, Baruch Hashem. Glad you are here with us. Parasha Matot Maseh. It's a double portion, as I say. <laughs> And so we're going to get right to it. Welcome everybody who's watching from across the fruited plain. Good morning, Haya Hayward. Hope you and little baby boy Hayward are being are doing well. He's not yet a riven, uh, or as we say, a rived, but uh, we're looking forward to him being here. It was great, by the way, to see everybody in the synagogue. I, I said earlier in the week that if you're staying home because you're scared of COVID, don't. And I don't know if that helped or not, but we had a, quite a few people in the shul, and it was nice to have a full house and everybody there, and <clears throat> that was fun. And so uh, that is wondrous. So glad you're here. Um, you know, please uh, uh, don't be afraid. People don't stay home during flu season, so there's no reason to stay home during COVID. Rukashim, all right. Uh, Parashat Matot, we're going to be on page 901, 901, if you're watching from a foreign land, welcome, Gabriel, watching from Germany, good to see you this morning, that is great, all of you watching down in the Caribbean, good to see you here, from Africa, glad you're here, and uh, from Europe, glad you're here as well, and from Antarctica, we want to continue to, uh, you know, they're having a cold front in Antarctica, by the way, today. All right, 901, uh, chapter 30, beginning in verse 2. This is going to be the first Aliyah. Let me just turn, okay, yep, just make sure I'm on the right page here. Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing that Adonai has commanded. This is the thing that Adonai has commanded. By the way, in Hebrew, in Ivrel, the word for thing and word are the same word. So just to, to point this out, because I think it's neat. So it says, Vadaber Moshe el Roshe Hamatot, Livne Yisrael Leomor Ze Hadavar. So Hadavar. When it says Zehadavar, that is in, in the translation, this is the thing. 
But you could also read this. This is the word. So the reason that's important, among other things, and I know Shomerman has some drops about this. Um, uh, incidentally, Zakin Yosef is the thing. You know, all of our guys around here, not, not every single one of the men, but most of the guys around here have a, uh, a uh, you know, Marvel uh, superhero character alter ego. And uh, Zeke and Yosef happens to be the thing. He's Hadavar. And uh, Zeke and Rayford, in case you're wondering, like well, if, if Zeke and Yosef is the thing, then who is Zeke and Rayford? Zeke and Rayford is War Machine. If you're into Marvel Comics. If you're not, then you don't get it. I understand. <clears throat> By the way. All right, so uh, enough about that. So uh, so we the reason this is important because it sets a precedent that the word can be a thing. The word can be something. The word can become something. It can become something tangible. It's, it's intrinsic in the Hebrew. <clears throat> so we say davar is a thing that means that the word can become concrete. It can become something, which it did. It became Yeshua. That's why that's important. If a man takes a vow to Adonai or swears an oath to establish a prohibition upon himself. Now, it's interesting because yesterday the drosh was largely about vows. And today's, we're talking about vows. You see how Shem works in our life? Now, I want to point out that taking a vow is not prohibited. It's very important because somebody might think that it's wrong to take a vow. Well, it's not necessarily wrong, but it is not advised. You, 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 in other words, it's not necessarily wrong, but you shouldn't do it. Okay. And there's, there, there are those types of things in life. So, uh, someone might say, well, didn't Yeshua say, let your yes be yes and your no be no? Yes, he did. And in fact, he was, he was, he was, uh, uh, there's nothing new in the New Testament, as I often say. He was confirming what the sages had already taught, which was, don't make a vow. Can you make a vow? Yes. Just like you could... Make a vow to become a Nazarite, but that is not advisable. You shouldn't do it. You could, but you shouldn't. So, I just want to point that out. Because the Torah says, if a man makes a vow, it doesn't say that you must make a vow. And incidentally, as I taught yesterday, and as we've learned about the Nazarite vow, contrary to popular belief, it is the spiritually weak people. Let me repeat that. It's the spiritually weak people that make vows, become Nazarites, and stuff like that. It's quite the reverse of what you think. You think that the person who's super holy is the one who lives in the monastery and doesn't talk to anybody and doesn't uh, just praise all the time, eats beans and rice or the Lord's chips, and uh, doesn't do anything. You think that that's the holy person. Turns out, no, it's not. The holy person is the one who goes out every day, interacts with life, makes choices on a moment-by-moment -moment basis of what is permitted and what is forbidden, and, and chooses permitted and rejects forbidden, that's the holy person. The one who locks himself into a cave 
where there's nothing, there's no choice to be made, there's no temptation, there's no, um, you know, there's no pull of the Yetzer Hara, they're just by themselves, they can't sin because it's them, the Lord's chips in a table, that's not a holy person. That's somebody who's super weak and can't take it. Just like you would say the brave person is not the one who stays home in a time of war. That seems obvious, right? Who would say, my uncle Ernest, he was so brave. When they called out men to go and, and defeat the Germans, he stayed home. Who would say that? But that's Uncle Ernest in the monastery. <clears throat> but if a woman will take a vow to Adonai or establish prohibition in her father's house <clears throat> in her youth, and her father's heard of her vow or the prohibition that she established upon herself, and her father was silent about it, then all her vows shall stand, and any prohibition that she established upon herself shall stand. But if her father restrained her on the day of his hearing, all her vows or prohibitions that she established upon herself shall not stand, and Adonai will forgive her, for her father had restrained her. So, an unmarried woman uh, in her father's house is subject to the father's uh, edict. <clears throat> now, if she's not married, I mean, excuse me, if she's married, then she's no longer under her father's edict. She's under her husband's edict. So remember how I was saying last week that um, the Torah gives uh, a lot of, well, provides for women's rights. That's what I was trying to say. Women's rights, honors women, those kind of things. But now we see a distinction of roles, and that's critical. People can be equal in value. People can be equal in their esteem, but it doesn't mean that we're necessarily equal in our roles in life. And so men and women have different roles, and it's when men try to be women and women try to be men is where things get in, get in trouble. This is why uh, the Torah forbids a woman to dress like a man, not allowed to dress like a man. You know, if you're going to be dressed, then you need to, you know... Um, you need to dress in... This is why men shouldn't wear skinny jeans. But that's my own personal thing. Uh, if you shall be married to a man, if she, rather, shall be married to a man, and her vows were upon her, or an utterance of her lips by which she had prohibited something upon herself, and her husband heard, and on the day of his hearing he was silent about her, then her vow shall stand, and her prohibition that she established upon herself shall stand. But if on the day of her husband's hearing, he shall restrain her and he shall revoke the vow that is upon her utterance of her lips by which she had prohibited something upon herself, then Adonai will forgive her. The vow of a widow. Now, why does it say forgive her? Well, wh whether it's the daughter or the, or the wife. And the, and the reason is because, <clears throat> just to restate the obvious, she's made a vow. And so God is not going to hold it against her that she didn't... Um, that she did not uh, uh, live up to the vow, okay? Because the, the, the father um, and, and or the husband, uh, you know, nullified it. The vow of a widow or divorcee, anything she had approved about herself, shall remain upon her. 
But if she vowed in her husband's home or, or she established her prohibition upon herself through an oath and her husband heard about it and was silent about her, he did not restrain her, then all her vows shall stand. And any prohibition she established upon herself shall stand. But if her husband shall revoke them on the day of his hearing, anything that came out of her mouth regarding her oath or the prohibition upon herself shall not stand. Her husband had rebuked them, and Adonai will forgive her. Any vow, any oath, prohibition to cause personal affliction, her husband may, may let it stand, and her husband may revoke it. If her husband shall be silent about her from the day to day, he will have, to, he will have let stand all her vows, or all the prohibitions that are upon her. He will have let them stand, for he was silent about her on the day of his hearing. But if he shall revoke them after he is having heard, he shall bear her iniquity. These are the decrees that Adonai commanded Moshe between man and his wife, between father and his daughter, in her youth, in her father's house. Chapter 31, verse 1. Capítulo 31, verse 1, para los Sephardic Yehudim. Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Take vengeance of, for the children of Israel against the Midianites. Afterward, you will be gathered unto your people. Moshe spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among yourselves with a legion that they be against Midian to inflict Hashem's vengeance against Midian. A thousand from a tribe, a thousand from a tribe, for all the tribes of Israel shall you send to the legion. So there were delivered from the thousands of the children of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for the legion. Moshe sent them a thousand from each tribe for the legion. Then them and Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the Kohen, the legion, and the sacred vessels and the trumpets were sounding in his hand. Now, now, Phineas has a unique position here, which we'll probably, hopefully, we'll get to, to chat about this week because it has a lot of messianic implications. But Phineas is the priest anointed for war. The priest anointed for war because... The uh, armies of Israel were a holy army, and they had they were led by generals and those kinds of things. However, in this case, they were also ultimately led by the priest anointed for war, who would anoint the people, pray a bracha over them, and then lead them in the battle. So the priest anointed for war obviously is like a messianic type figure, and that's uh, also how it comes out in the um, rabbinic literature. It says, They massed against Midian as Adonai had commanded Moshe, and they killed every male. They killed the king of Midian along with their slain ones, Avi, Rechem, Zor, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, and Belam, son of Beor, they slew with the sword. So there's the fate of Belam. Remember Belam? He died by the sword. So once again, just to reiterate, you say, well, I mean, you know, God had some, um, he had some Gentile prophets. This was, this, you know, people point to Balaam as a, as an example of a Messianic Gentile. They do, believe it or not. And I just want to point out that the Messianic Gentile that they point to, which of course he wasn't, but he ended up dying by the sword at the hands of Israel. And who was he fighting with? Notice, notice, no, no one, you know, they, they, I've, heard, I've heard people try to point to Belam as this example of how the, the Messianic Gentile thing could work, which is insane because we have, who is Belam fighting with? He's fighting with the Midianites. 
He's fighting with the idolaters. Who is he fighting against? We've identified who his teammates are, but now who is he fighting against? He's fighting against the God of Israel. And we want to use this as an example of how to be a really good Messianic Gentile. I'm convinced that most people don't take a step back oftentimes and think things through. They just accept it whole, whole, whole cloth. But that's for another time. The children of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their young children and their cattle and their flocks and all their wealth they took as spoils. All the cities of their habitations and all their palaces they burned in fire. They took all the booty and all the captives of the people and the animals and they brought to Moshe, to Eliezer the Kohen, to the assembly of the children of Israel, the captives, the animals, the booty of the camp at the plains of Moab, which was by the Jordan near Jericho. Near Jericho. Okay. I have a couple of Left Behind series I want to mention just real quick um, from last week before I get into some topics specifically to Matot that we haven't already said. But these are important because we're in a time of Teshuva, and when we come out of the time of Teshuva, it'll be the ninth of Av. We will have the ninth of Av, we'll have roughly 20 days, 21 days, something like that, until we come to the first of Elul. And the first of Elul begins the 40 days of Tshuva. Then we have the 40 days of Tshuva. At the 30-day mark, we end up at Rosh Hashanah. And then at the 40-day mark, we end up at Yom Kippur. At both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, well, mostly at Rosh Hashanah, we hear the, the, the sounding of the shofar. So, um, there's an insight here on the shofar blast from last week's Torah portion uh, that I just want to get to from Parashah Phineas. And so this is what it says. This is from the Kehol Tumash. A day of shofar sounding for you. The Baal Shem Tov gave the following analogy to illustrate the effect of blowing the shofar. If you ever wondered why you're affected so much by the sound of the shofar, here's why. Once there was a king who had an only son. The son was well learned and his father loved him very much. One day the king and the prince decided that it would be educational for the prince to travel to faraway lands to learn the wisdom and ways of the people who lived there. The king gave the prince an entourage of ministers and servants as well as a large amount of money for his expedition, all so that he advanced in his knowledge and wisdom beyond his ability to do so at home and the king's court. But as the journey wore on, the prince spent all the money on the luxuries he was accustomed to having at home, plus other excesses that he indulged in on the way. Eventually, he was left with nothing and had arrived at a place so far away from home that no one there had even heard of his father. Distraught, the prince decided it was time to go home, but he had been away so long that he had forgotten his native tongue. So, when he finally made his way back to the capital city of his kingdom, he could not explain to anyone who he was or where he needed to go. He tried to gesture to them that he was the prince, but of course, no one paid any attention to him. Finally, when he was near enough to the palace so the king could hear him, he let loose a wordless scream so his father would recognize his voice. The king indeed recognized his son's voice and sent for him, and they were reunited. So, the Kale Humash comments, the Jewish soul is God's child. This child went, was sent into the foreign environment of this material world for its own edification. 
accomplishments, accomplished rather, by, the, by learning the Torah and fulfilling its commandments. You know, let me finish this, and I'll, I'll say what I'm going to say. But by indulging in the delights of this world, the soul becomes increasingly estranged from its native milieu. It is gradually drawn into an environment that does not recognize divinity and is not concerned with it, and it eventually forgets the language of holiness and purity. Before I read the next section, I just want to say, because we talked about Moshe, we talked about rather Aaron dying in the last parsha, And Aaron tells Moshe that I can't describe, because Moshe asked him, what's it like to die? I think that's probably a question that all of us would wonder. And he says, I can't really tell you. I can't really speak about it. Probably because it's intended to be a secret. But he can say, he did say, all I can say is that I wish that I had gotten here sooner. And um, in this era of fear in which many people are living, which, by the way, is not from Hashem, um, but... People are fearing. What are they fearing? Well, they're fearing a, a dreaded disease, which I won't get into the statistics. Y'all are all well aware of the propaganda. But people are terrified. They're terrified of what? Terrified of dying, naturally. But when we read stories like this, it should remind us of an important fact. Something that is, again, not... What I'm about to say is not like, oh my gosh, I've never heard this before. What an amazing rabbi. No, these are things that we all know to be true. They're fundamentals. This is going back to Vince Lombardi and and uh, uh, the Green Bay Packers. Back when football was worth watching. Totally, 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 totally boycotting it now. Uh, but anyway, that's an aside. He held up a football and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. Whenever they lose a game, he got back to the fundamentals. So... Fundamentally, we have to understand that this world is not our home. We were sent here from our home. Now, we're here, and going through that matrix, this is all we know. Uh, <clears throat> and therefore, the idea of leaving this place and returning... Is terrifying because we don't know what we don't know. But what I'm trying to get across to us is that there shouldn't be that level of fear because this is just, this is an expedition that we're on right now. This is a mission that we're on right now. We're in a foreign place right now to accomplish a mission. God willing, we'll accomplish it. But at some point, we're going to return back home. And do you know what it, you know what it's like when you've been out someplace, maybe even on vacation, you've gone somewhere on vacation, you've had a great time, or maybe you've been somewhere doing something, and you know how wonderful it is to get home, to sleep in your own bed, to be in your own kitchen, to sit on your own favorite chair, the familiarity, the, the the wonderfulness of just being home, and it's it's you. We long to go on vacation. We go on vacation. We're having a great time. We come back, and it's great to be home. That's what it's going to be like when we go back to Shemayim. 
And I just want to release that uh, spirit to all of us, especially in this time when we are uh, being propagandized, if that's a proper word, on a daily basis to live in utter fear to where we don't want to uh, be around anybody, come within six feet of them. Uh, We don't want to come to shul. We don't want to go to work. We don't want to go to the grocery store. And, uh, you know, something, by the way, I don't mean to get off on a tangent here, but but just, just I don't want to say one little thing. You know how I feel about the mask thing. If By the way, can I just say, if you are someone who has a compromised immune system, <clears throat> you know, you're dealing with uh, some kind of a health issue, wear a mask. You, you, you probably should wear a mask during flu season, if you want to be honest. It, don't, don't wear a mask just during this, because it's not, not really that big of a deal. But it's far more dangerous for you to catch H1N1, ladies and gentlemen, than to catch COVID. I guarantee you. I'm not a doctor, but to quote David Wilson, I'm not a doctor, but I'm not a moron either. Okay? <clears throat> but something else about the mask that is troubling to me. And somebody brought this up, and I think it may have been Zakin Rayford. I don't recall. I think it was Zakin Rayford. But he was talking about that it removes our facial expressions from one another. And uh, I recall the other day I was wearing a, I was wearing a mask because I have to, you know, it's 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 the law right now. And I was trying to smile at someone and kind of give them a little gesture of, of smiling, and I realized they can't see me. I'm like I'm like the invisible man. So it, it's re- we we're removing ourselves from fellowship. It's really. I don't, again, I'm not trying to get off on a tangent, but I just, my, those are my concerns, among other things. But, continue our reading here about the shofar. Shofar so good? Alright. says, but at some point, our, talking about our soul, at some point, our soul remembers who it is, and it cries out to God. This is the wordless blast of the shofar which utters the innermost voice of the soul in its regret for its past deeds, its longing for its divine home, and its desire to rededicate itself to its father. When God hears this cry, it arouses his mercy And he forgives the soul, restoring it to its former intimacy with him. This is the power of the shofar blast. Now, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Bertovich gave the following analogy. A king once sent on a journey that led him into the deep thicket of a forest. At one point, he lost his way and could not determine how to get out. A group of villagers passed by, so he asked them for directions back to the palace, but they did not recognize him, so they did not know if they should help him or not. And moreover, they did not know the way to the palace. Eventually, someone passed by who did recognize that it was the king and who did know the way to the palace, so he escorted the king back home. The king was so impressed with this person's knowledge that he made him his personal advisor. A long time after this, the advisor wronged the king in some way, and in his anger, the king told the ministers to judge the advisor and declare him guilty of rebellion. The advisor was very upset because he knew that what this meant, so he asked the king for the last request. 
that they both dressed themselves in the clothes they wore when they had their first encounter in the forest. The king agreed, and when he put on the clothes he wore and then saw the advisor wearing the clothes that he had worn then, he remembered at once the tremendous favor the advisor had done by leading him out of such a hopeless situation. In his gratitude, the king forgave the advisor of his misdeed and returned him to his post. Similarly, when God wished to give the Torah, he first inquired of all the other nations, and none of them accepted it. It began to look as if no one was interested in fulfilling God's purpose in creation, and God had created the world for nothing. But then the Jews accepted the Torah immediately and enthusiastically. Eventually, our initial enthusiasm waned, and when we transgressed the Torah's instructions, we therefore blew the shofar to re- or blow the shofar to remind God on of the day when we first met at Mount Sinai. And the shofar reminds God of how we accepted his Torah unconditionally and he forgives our misdeeds. So every time we blow the shofar, it's taking us back to a, to a date night with God, the day we first met, the day when we accepted the Torah. And even though we've transgressed the Torah and we've made mistakes, initially we accepted it whereas no one else accepted it. So it says both of these parables revolve around the idea that Rosh Hashanah is a time of renewal, of returning to the origin and drawing new levels of connection from the inexhaustible wellsprings of our relationship with God. This annual renewal is necessary if life is to retain its freshness and novelty. Every level of divine consciousness carries its inherent model of thinking, expression and action, its own language. If we merely continue cultivating the same type of divine consciousness we have been nurturing the past year, we will remain locked in its intrinsic limitations, ultimately making our religious lives seeming, seeming re- repetitive and dull. On Rosh Hashanah, God withdraws the divine energy to sustain creation the previous year, and he replenishes it with a new and fresh vitality. It is therefore an opportunity for us to do the same, to make a quantum leap to a new plateau of divine consciousness that will inspire our lives for the coming year. Now, to accomplish this, we cannot rely on the words of our prayers because words carry specific meanings for us that are limited by the knowledge and experiences we've accrued in our lives. In order to break out of the contextual meaning of our limited modes of expression, we use the blasts and the wails of the shofar, which transcend the confines of verbal language. In this way, we recapture the innocence and inspiration of a newly born soul as it comes out of the womb and cries out with its first cry. And we renew our relationship with the living God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why the shofar blast is called a teruah which literally means to cry out, to shout out. Yom Teruah is translated the day of the shofar blast, but in actuality, the translation is the day of crying, the the day of shouting. End of our Aliyah today. We have more to share, but we're going to come to that tomorrow as we get into the second Aliyah of our parasha. Until then, have an amazing day, a wonderful day. We look forward to seeing everybody then. Shalom Alekum to all of you.